0: This is Food First Michigan on
1: 760 WJR, sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state, and by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for listening. For over two years now, we have stated we are living in unprecedented times. That is absolutely true. And to be candid, there are some days I miss just the plain old precedented times. Getting back to normal is another phrase, but it looks like there is no return path that leads there. The days we live in bring with them new challenges and we must adapt to them. We learn, adjust, learn and adjust some more. One thing that hasn't changed is the vital role employment plays in helping people overcome food insecurity. Jerry and I often talk about what it will take to solve hunger and create a food secure state. One of the biggest and best tools in the anti-hunger toolbox is employment. A job that pays a wage that allows a person or family to become self-sufficient should be the standard and our food banks strive to pay at that level. While there is proposed legislation to help ignite the labor force, we need to understand more about the challenges in the job market today. No one better to help us do that than the new CEO at the Small Business Association of Michigan, Brian Kelly. Brian joins me and Jerry Brisson next on this edition of Food First Michigan. Thanks for joining us. Jerry, as promised, our guest and our friend today, Brian Kelly, the CEO and President for the Small Business Association of Michigan. Brian, welcome. This is your first time, I think, on Food First Michigan. So welcome to the show and thanks for being with us.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for the invitation and uh, just really thrilled to continue the, the close uh, relationship, you know, as the transition has happened with the Small Business Association of Michigan really, really excited about the future. You know, these are complicated times, but also times of great change are, are exciting times where it seems like uh, the the challenges are big, but the opportunities and the possibilities are even bigger.
2: That's why you're here, right? Because that's exactly what we want to hear about. There's so much going on. And of course, right now, day day by day by day, watching what's happening overseas and, and trying to understand what that impact is going to be. We're, we're not even anywhere near having a clarity about that. I just read a thing this morning about the, the food supply chain related to grain worldwide is going to be stressed and we're trying to get our, our head around that. But, but before, you know, we even have any insight into that, we're still kind of getting getting past the Great Recession, and 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 what's happening with employment, and how is that affecting small businesses? And of course, you know that all affects the number of people we have in line needing uh, food assistance. And so it's great to have someone with your long term experience, both with government and with business, to help us unpack some of that a little bit. But I know we're going to want to know more about you. One of the things our listeners love the most is to hear a little bit about our guests and, and how did they get where they are today. And so uh, we hope you're, you'll share a little bit of your life story with us.
0: Well, I, no, I appreciate that. I mean, it's, it's been, I think, of my, uh, my career in a, in a few different stages, three different stages, really. There was the first part, which was banking. So I made business loans to small businesses. That was what I made a career out of. Um, I kind of figured I'd be in banking for my whole career. But then um, I, I had a friend that got elected to a local political office and uh, was a county commissioner in Ionia County, a very rural county in the center part of the state. And, um, and she had, she said, you know what, we've got to update and modernize the finances of the county. We don't have anybody with, uh, with good financial know-how on the board right now. Have you ever thought about running for county commissioner? You know, Actually, Jerry, I didn't even know what a county commissioner did. I knew we had them, but I didn't know what they did. And, um, and so I, you know, I looked into it and I thought, well, I could do that, but I was a banker and, you know, doing that uh, kind of part-time or holding a political office and how would that work? Well, I did run and I was unopposed in my first election and the primary and the general election. And I highly, highly recommend unopposed elections. They're way, (laughs) way better than the kind where you're opposed. And, uh, but, you know, I got uh, I, I, I was elected and I loved it. It was just a part time thing. But there were seven of us on the board and me and three other people could could make almost anything happen at the county level. And that was exciting and dynamic. And I, it, I really kind of got hooked. And that was 2003, four, five and six. Now, you might remember the economy in Michigan wasn't particularly good back then. And um, and so I was dealing with small businesses and I thought, you know what? I straightened out the county. I should go straighten out the state, and so, <laughs> um, and then I so I ran for state representative. I won, but um, I learned really quickly that uh, that that the legislature and you know the state was full of people that saw the world very differently than I did. And Mm. uh, and so I served in the minority at that point, Republican, uh, but Democrats controlled the House of Representatives. And so I I learned really quickly that um, that if you wanted to get something done, you really had to figure out how to work with people that had very, very different outlooks on life and issues than Mm. uh, than I did. And uh, and so that was some really key experience. Later on, um, a mutual friend introduced me to Rick Snyder. I remember the first time I, uh, I met him, I thought, well, you know, too bad he has no chance of winning because I think he's really <laughs> smart. He'd probably make a good governor. And, uh, but you know, we, we got close We became friends and um, it was a while before um, I was a believer that he actually could win. And uh, of course he, he did. And, and, uh, and then he invited me to, to d- join the ticket with him. So I served out that eight years, unsuccessfully ran for governor and uh, in 2018. And, um, and then as, as I searched for, you know, what that Next step would be uh, just kind of out of nowhere. My predecessor Rob Fowler, who's no stranger to this program, um, has uh, he he reached out and said, you know, what about SBAM? I I didn't really want to be this close to the Capitol. I'm two blocks from the Capitol <laughs> right now, and right. Um, and so like it's uh it's not something that I really wanted to do, or I didn't think I wanted to do. But it only took a little while to figure out that yeah, this is the right place, the right mission, the right people, the right time, and uh, haven't looked back. I just I love every day. I love this team, and I love the work that we do.
1: That's awesome. That's a great. That's a great story, Brian. And you know, um, during these days of the pandemic, I know you and Rob would uh, would do a, a, a live show, so to speak, on Facebook to kind of help guide not, and to be candid, not just small business through the the maze of the pandemic, but I think it helped a lot of us too. Uh, Because, you know, how, as Jerry said earlier, the the ebb and the flow of business really does affect the ebb and the flow of our work in food security as well. And so I want to just bring that out that, you know, you, you guys found a way. And, and as I realized, you didn't have great internet out at your house there. So some days you would be actually in your vehicle um, somewhere, stop someplace doing the show throughout the pandemic. So those were very helpful and I, I appreciate it. And I know i echo again, Jerry, that, that our listeners love to hear the story. And I, I think most everybody knows you and, and who you are and that you served us uh, as a state. But yet to hear it from you it's it it's it's sounds pretty cool
2: yeah and connecting all those dots how fantastic
0: you know it was a uh in the in the in the early stages of the pandemic when when it everything did change so you know, had to go remote one of the things our association does is compliance education and we so even after everybody else stopped following the rules, we still did because when you do compliance education to be credible, you better uh, <laughs> you, be, you better be compliant yourself, right? So when the pandemic started, we really um, we had to reach our members in a, in a very different way, and I didn't even have high speed internet available at my house. I lived way out in the country on a dirt road, and and so um, I I drove I literally drove my car to where I had a stronger cell phone signal at Tom's gas station in Portland. <laughs> And, brought, I, I would, and, and actually all my meetings were, were were uh virtual at that point of course so we i i would be in my car for like eight hours a day you know one thing that was kind of a, kind of a strange thing was um like i'm from portland like i know everybody in portland everybody in portland knows me and so here i am sitting in my car you know <laughs> on a meeting with our members and like people would pull up that i know and they'd come to stop in and you're like Knock kind on of the window, like wanting me to roll down the window, and kind of, um, you know, wave them off or say hello. And hey, I'm kind of busy right now. And I was kind of worried about my neighbors, like, well, geez, Brian wouldn't even acknowledge me when I saw <laughs> right, him right. yesterday. So, uh, yeah, but we, we did what we had to do. But what it did help us do is to is to build an online community of uh, of folks that were just looking for um, the looking for honest, unbiased unemotional and you know straightforward information that yeah there's a lot of political disagreements about this but that's not what this is about we're going to try and figure out this together and for our for our members for small businesses which are about half of the employers in the state or half of the workforce works for small businesses in Michigan uh, the uh, it's how, how are we gonna get through today How are we gonna get through to next week how sure. are we gonna to try to predict what's gonna happen in the future
1: well, you got to deal with the reality, right? First, you got to define it, and then you got to learn how to deal with it. And uh, and I think that food bankers really appreciate that because they're some of the most pragmatic people on the planet as well. Um, hey, this is Brian Kelly. He is the president and the CEO for the Small Business Association of Michigan. That's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight, and we're all three back with you in just a moment.
0: the Food Bank Council of Michigan at
1: fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. We're back, everyone. Thanks for listening. Brian Kelly, the CEO and President for SBAM. Jerry Brisson, myself, Dr. Phil Knight. And uh, Brian, I wish you would, if you would, spend a few minutes with us talking about uh, something that I think everybody in Michigan sees, and that's help wanted signs on Main Street. Small businesses uh, looking for people to come to work, and uh, there's some. This is not a simple issue. I think it's pretty complex about um, the workforce and where we're at in Michigan. and And in our work, we believe, and Jerry has said on this show for years that the one of the biggest tools in the anti-hunger toolbox is a job a job that leads people towards self-sufficiency. So I wonder if you could help our listeners understand kind of what the dilemma is with uh, employment in Michigan right now.
0: The overall labor force participation rate has actually been trending down for a couple of decades. There was In the last decade, it kind of leveled out a bit. It dropped very, very significantly in the be- beginning of the pandemic. It came back after the, the spring of 2020, but never recovered to pre pandemic levels, even at this at this uh, juncture. And so what was already a difficult situation got more difficult uh, throughout the the pandemic, this uh, this decline in labor force participation. So it's below 60 percent now. It's about fifty nine and a half percent. And that's that's really difficult. It might not seem like a lot compared to, say, you know, uh, you know, 20 years ago, our labor force participation rate was was closer to 70, you know, high 60s percent. So it might not seem like a big drop over that 20 years, but that has ramifications across the board. And um, in the pandemic, though, what we saw was, was a little different. It wasn't just um, across the board. We saw certain groups of people that left at higher rates. So older workers, especially over age uh, 55, but the older they get, of course, the higher likelihood of leaving the, the workforce. Michigan, for a very long time, has relied on an older than average workforce in order to make this place we call Michigan run. And so the idea of people leaving uh, the workforce at a, at a heavier clip than normal for retirement is, uh, is a factor that uh, that hits us. Harder than a lot of other states that weren't as reliant on older workers as we have been, and then the other is the other side of the spectrum. It's workers with younger families with with kids, especially women that have exited the workforce, and you know availability, reliably of uh, K twelve uh, schooling and uh, and then child care because K twelve plays a child care function in addition sure. to uh, the education, of course. So. Um, those are two segments but there's actually a new one that um, that i think is 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 really kind of interesting um because we don't normally think of it in this way but people ask the question how can how can somebody leave the workforce how can they afford not to work well you know we tend to oversimplify things right we'll think of Mm -hmm. it as you know going from all income to no income but that's not what has happened people that have worked left the workforce tend to be married And so it's the idea that one spouse, you know, a lot of families, one spouse is the main breadwinner, and the other one um, is, uh, is, uh, is more supplemental. And, uh, and so that second person can be more circumspect and choosy about how they reenter the workforce, Hmm. especially when, um, you know, a lot of costs, at least in the beginning part of the pandemic, uh, that families were dealing with, were, uh, were lower. So they figured out how to make that work when they didn't have automobile expenses and gasoline and that sort of thing when everybody was remote. Now it's a very different picture. We see inflation hitting. We see costs rising across the board. Um, the unemployment is re- is returned to normal in terms of the unemployment benefits. That helped a little bit uh, in right. terms of labor force participation. But, the, um, but I think over the long term, it really is going to take um, a... Uh, a sustained effort in accommodating the types of um of work conditions that employees are looking for and this next generation is looking for a different work-life balance looking for more flexibility mm-hmm. um and um and also some upward pressure on wages and and uh, and benefits there is actually one proposal on the table that i think is there's a lot of utility to and some good bipartisan uh, support for it it's called the earned income tax credit back when michigan was in really difficult financial straits this was scaled back somewhat back about 10 years ago uh, 11 years ago the um but the uh but now when the state has you know 74 billion dollars this year i mean this idea (laughs) of scaling back uh some uh some taxes is on the table in a real real way um and that uh, uh and the earned income tax credit what it does is it it gives lower income workers a reward for still working. And uh, and so it, it makes us, it makes a lot of sense. Our members are actually pretty interested in this more so than, than 10 years ago, because mm-hmm. it's the juxtaposition of the unemployment system, which was really kind of perceived as a competitor for the workforce uh, uh-huh. compared to the earned income tax credit, which is a reward for joining the workforce even if you're you don't have access to, um, uh, you know, a high skill, high wage job. Right.
2: Boy, is that singing the tune we've been singing for a long <laughs> time on this show. I mean, we have got to align um, our our strategies for helping low income people with work. We have to do that, and not just the Earned Income Tax Credit, which is a hugely important example, but the benefits cliff right we've talked about the benefits cliff for a long time and 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 after a certain wage People lose benefits faster than they increase income, and it disincentivizes getting promoted, learning more, becoming management, and and staying at work. And so the alignment of those things is has got to be a priority. And it's it's really good to have another example right in front of us with the Earned Income Tax Credit. You know, the fact is we know small businesses struggle. We know a lot of them. Rob used to say they're like people. You know, you've got you've got different levels of capacity and different levels of, of uh, opportunity, and so you've got to look at everything in a more complex light in order to solve problems, and I, I think that these tools that we have in in legislation and in benefits have to align with the experience of small businesses, and I, I really like the example that you just gave.
0: Yeah, there's also a, um, you know, you talked about the benefits cliff, and, you know, like you know, on this dollar amount you're in, on that dollar amount you're out. And, um, and a lot of those are federal rules that are really they've proven to be difficult to change you know to try to step out uh sure. so that so you don't unintentionally um disqualify or um or or incentivize somebody to make make a decision not to work or that it's too risky to go to work there's been a few uh, improvements here and there um with within you know social security with um with some changes. Uh, for asset levels for people with disabilities to, to continue work without losing that safety net um, or to go to work without losing that safety net. Um, child care is another one I would put on the table as a sure. big, big issue. Uh, because it, right right now, or historically, child care support for low-income workers has been focused on poverty. and um, But It really needs to be like we we looked at it and think that really about 200 or even 250 percent of poverty is where we think the the support for child care and covering the cost of high quality child care for workers will make the biggest difference. And so expanding that um, the the income cap to get some support way up above where it has traditionally been is important, because that you know, when you're, um, if you've got a a six figure job available to you, that's, that's a pretty easy decision in terms of, um, you know, is do you come out net ahead with childcare, but if it's a $40,000 job or $45,000 job or a $50,000 job, the uh, and you've got a family of four, then, um, you know, you're around that 200% of poverty. And um, and going to work and, and paying for child care, it's it's kinda yeah, you're coming out net ahead, but if you what's your actual take home hourly, you know, right. rate of pay after child care expenses, it's not surprising that people say, Well, geez, I'm you know, I'm netting out four or five dollars an hour over <laughs> child care costs. Why would I do that? And and I think that's you know, so we have to assume that people are gonna make rational, personal economic decisions.
2: People want to spend time with their kids. And let's not forget the other side of this equation is by working and not spending time with your kids, there's a cost there too. Now I'm not saying childcare is a bad thing at all. It's a great thing, right? But there's a lot of trade-offs to manage that aren't even economic when you start looking at childcare. I want to make one more point. Often in the childcare space, the workers themselves are fairly underpaid. So, by making it more accessible to have people use childcare, drives up wages within the childcare space, and that's not a bad benefit either. So, you get the benefit of people being able to go to work and benefit from that. You get the benefit of raising wages within childcare and then helping people balance this whole idea of spending time with their kids. All of those are benefits to looking at how do you tackle this whole picture and I think I think it's really really critical.
0: the business model on being a child care provider has to work so the reimbursement rates for these systems has to uh, that has to modernize it has to respond to what's happening out there in the real world because otherwise you're not going to have child care providers then the mm-hmm. income qualification levels have to be increased to really help the, the workforce that are really on the bubble. You know does it make sense or not to go in and then um and then when you look at the uh, the overall um uh, i guess i'd say the, the slice of the pie that is yeah. uh, that is available in order to make all this happen it really had to increase and increase by quite a bit so it's not it's not a natural thing for an association like ours to be at the appropriations table saying you know, here, are, here, here's some government spending that, um, that you know, is really in order to, to for things to kind of get, remove some obstacles. Here, we've got to, uh, we've got to figure out. But this is one of those areas, and it wasn't even direct. It's not, it's not for business. It's, but it, it but it is indirectly for business, it, to the extent that we can remove obstacles to people going to work, all the other stuff will work better.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think that's one of the attractions that um, our associations have had. Um, again, they used to think that you know business and nonprofit social services were were not aligned to help the population. But the more we talk, the more we find that when you go to that appropriations table, give us a call because we'll go with you because this is going to help the families that we're serving. It's going to help the families that you're serving. He's Brian Kelly. He's the president and the CEO for the Small Business Association of Michigan. That's Jerry Rassan. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. Come back. We've got one more segment with Brian. You don't want to miss it. Food first, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Thanks for listening, everyone. Brian Kelly's with us, Jerry Brasson, Doctor Phil Knight here. Um, can I can I quote a can I use a Fowlerism here? Can I can I can I, can I pull out a Fowlerism? Um, that
0: would be awesome.
1: Yeah, Brian, uh, on the show one time, uh, Rob Rob Fowler, your predecessor, said um, the sh- the the quickest the surest way out of poverty is education. And the quickest way out of poverty is entrepreneurship, and it might be one of the smartest things Rob ever said, uh, because it really set us to thinking about the families that we serve, and um, you know our job is to take hunger off the table, get get out from under that toxic stress of food insecurity, so people can think, they can they can work toward achieving and finding their next success. Uh, But if you're hungry or your kids are hungry, you really only have one problem and that problem consumes your mind. And until you're free of that, you're not really free to think about opportunities. Um, But it seems like some people are free uh, and they've been thinking about their opportunities and their future
0: yeah there has been throughout the the pandemic starting straight away in the uh, spring of 2020 an explosion of new business starts so people um, when people start a new business one of the first things that they have to do is get a tax id number assigned from the irs and when they do that they classify it in a certain way whether they're going to be a sole proprietor or they plan to have employees and regardless of which one you look at you look at the total look at the sole props look at the those who expect to have employees and they're all way up and sustainably way up across the country and here in Michigan the uh the number of people that have turned to entrepreneurship uh during the time of the pandemic which is kind of counterintuitive you know you think wow you know it's riskier and small businesses you know mm-hmm. we see some indexes say that um, as many as half of small businesses didn't make it and in, 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 it's frustrating we don't really know um what the um what the survival rate is for small business cuz most of them if they do close they just quietly close their doors the um hmm. there's not some big filing that is not covered in the news and that sort of thing so you know it has to be kind of uh estimated but in an amongst that, other people have entered into the market or maybe some of those entrepreneurs reset and and started a new business in a different way closed down the old one and started something new but regardless of of where it's coming from it's been way higher than normal and this is an exciting development in uh in our uh in our economic landscape and our prospects for the future because smaller businesses are are very diverse in the way that they approach the business the things that they do um, the, they're necessarily more diverse across uh, industries and uh, in geographies. And what it does is it brings a resiliency to the economy that, uh, that the bigger businesses really can't provide. You know, big, bigger businesses are important. We're very fortunate to have uh, a lot of, you know, corporate world headquarters here in Michigan, and that creates a whole ecosystem of small businesses underneath each one of them. But just the overall landscape is very, very diverse when it comes to small mm. businesses. So when we see this go up so much, um, thousands more than what we normally see over the last two years, wow. then it is, um, when I say actually thousands, in some cases, thousands more in a particular month than we normally see. Wow. Um, that this is uh, this is exciting for our future. We don't know yet which industries, I mean, at SBM, we know like, We've got a pile of anecdotes, but again, there's right. not indexes. They, we just know that people filed for a tax ID number to start a business, and um, and, uh, and the ones who f- we 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 look extra close to the ones that file as employers that they plan to employ people, and uh, and that's an exciting time.
1: That's awesome. That's pretty exciting. Hey, Jerry.
2: I mean, I don't, I have like so many things running through my head. I just, I, you know, like, well, what businesses are they starting? And is there a trend? And is it, is it, you know, even, even thinking about, because there's still a lot of businesses that haven't recovered yet. You know, we know food services and, and, and the food, you know, space is still trying to figure out what are the right levels of take home versus pickup versus, you know, where does DoorDash fit in? I mean, I know, you know, I've heard stories from, from Small restaurants saying DoorDash is actually hurting their business in some ways because the the it's it's taking away some of the profit from the business and they're already so close to the edge and you know it's such a complicated environment when you look by sector at these small businesses so I've got like. Fifty questions in my mind about well, what are these small businesses emerging? Are they are they technology? Are they people writing? You know, are they are they people who are providing specific services? Are they you know are they trying to compete with with a take home food business? I mean, you know, and, and I don't know if there's no indexes, yeah. it may be impossible to answer.
0: Well, I've got, but I do have theories, and my theories are based on a lot of interactions with with companies. So I think that we've got some big categories that we can have some confidence. in, we know that some people that whatever they were doing before the world left that behind, it changed so much that that was no longer a viable option. And so we know that that some businesses are people closing down old businesses, and then, and they're serial serial entrepreneurs, and they're starting something new. Mm-hmm. Right. We know that there's plenty of that type of activity that is happening. And one of the reasons why it you know, you can see like maybe half a small businesses, um, failed, but but really, when you consider some of those are, are people that just kind of reorganized and went right back at it, um, you know, there's kind of a net effect there that that's less mm-hmm. harsh. But I also um, I also think that there's um, a rise in professional services in in uh, contract type uh, type work. So individuals that wanna control more of their destiny and they do a professional service for a company as a staff member are leaving to be independent contractors where they're masters of their own domain, they're deciding how and where and, uh, and when they work and they're taking on multiple clients. And so maybe their first client was their previous employer. Uh, so these professional service providers that went from employees to, uh, to small businesses um, I don't know how big a proportion, but I know it's not insignificant in the, in the way that people have worked or moved to that type of work, and um, you know, and it's and it's an opposite trend too. It's what's really interesting is before people might start as a contract employee and they and they want to work onto the staff, and now what we see is literally the opposite. And then there's. And, and I think what's happening, too, is that the shortage out there in workers is creating demand for this. So employers who before would want to hire a person to do, I don't know, their accounts payable or something, are more willing to contract mm-hmm. that out today because they, you know, maybe sure. their accounts payable person retired and they, and they just haven't been able to find a person. So they're in the market for professional services. And so entrepreneurs see this and say, wow, you know, I do this for this company. And then here's one that's a little this is a little bit out, you know, a theory out there that um, maybe a little conspiracy theorist type of thing. But I think mm-hmm. that everybody working remotely has given some employees the option of having their cake and eat it, eating it too. Where before mm-hmm. it was like, do I want to start a business? I gotta, I gotta leave my regular paycheck behind in order to start the business. Mm-hmm. But today, in a remote work environment, I think there's a segment of these new businesses that are side hustles. Where a person Mm -hmm. um, is able to maintain and keep their full time job, maybe doesn't mention to their employer that they got this other thing that they've started and they're working on, and um, but are able to start a business while being a W two employee of somebody, and that's um, and so that's uh, you know all of those things together I think is are part of this explosion of entrepreneurship. But you notice though that. I've not talked a lot about what people traditionally think of as small business. You right. know, we think of the of the storefront, we think of the restaurants, we think, you know, like the um, like those are the, the the small businesses that people see and interact with in their personal lives every day. But most small businesses are actually professional service providers, mm-hmm. and they're yep. mostly doing business to business type transactions. And that is, or I, I shouldn't say most, I say plurality because uh, there's so many different categories and looking at it. But professional services is a massive, massive part of the small business ecosystem.
1: Ah, more the better, I say. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, lifts, lifts families out of poverty and uh, and reach self-sufficiency. I think that's the goal that we all have for folks and folks have for themselves. Brian, thanks so much for being with us, man. First time to be on the show. I sure hope it's not your last. Um, because this has been very helpful for uh, us, our listeners, and uh, to see how our works kind of work together is pretty, pretty cool and pretty refreshing.
0: Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation, and I'll be flattered if you invite me back.
1: We'll do it Thank for you. sure. J- Jerry and I are back to wrap up this edition of Food First Michigan in just a moment. Brian Cali, lots of information in that segment with Brian.
2: Man, I want to have a two-hour show. I really do. There's so much to know there, but great information. Love Brian. Can't wait to have him back. Really good.
1: Well, let's jump to a little food for thought here. Helping families earn, get ahead, build wealth, and become self-sufficient. These are the goals shared by SBAM and the Food Bank Council of Michigan. We choose to invest in the potential of people, and we do so because we believe they are worthy of investment. At the Food Bank Council of Michigan, we know what to do first to help our families, and that is keep food first, folks, food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance
0: of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.